welcome to Gritty Leader Podcast. Today I'm talking to Emma Simpson and I'm excited for this episode because Emma gives me great ideas and inspires me every time we talk. Emma is the outgoing MD of G&N, a leading laboratory consumable company and now the market leader in DVT, deep vein thrombosis prevention. Our conversation takes us into rebuilding a company and some of the really dark times Emma faced and how these fed into creating the team and the culture that really sets GNN apart today. We talk about Gen Z and we get into an initiative very characteristic of Emma, which is called The Great Yak. More about that uh, in a moment. Before we get into this, just a heads up, our recording environment was not ideal. Fina Charleston, our editor, has worked wonders. Thanks, Fina. You may still hear some background noise, but it's worth it. Emma's is a great story. Let's hear it. Emma, Emma Simpson, welcome to the podcast. I've wanted to have you here for ages because actually I met you right at the beginning of the role that you've just completed. And and at that time, you had a big task ahead. You were telling me about it, big task ahead. And we've kept in touch, uh, spoken lots during that time. You've built a great team, a fantastic culture, a team and culture that has surprised you, surprised themselves. So much has been achieved. Uh, The pandemic was navigated as well. And you've declared mission accomplished. You're about to go on to something else. So it's such a good time to to catch you. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's an honour to be here. (laughs) Shall we dive in? Sure, let's do it. Emma, what's the backstory? How did you become managing director at at GNN? Oh, completely by accident, to be perfectly honest. I joined GNN back in 2013 um, and I wanted a quiet life. I wasn't career focused. I didn't really have ambitions in in that kind of traditional sense and for me it was just about doing a really great job and 18 months in there had been some difficulties with the finance directors that we had and I I was asked would there be any interest in the role and I sat there and I thought well you know I've, I've just turned 30 what a great adventure this would be what great experience this would be and there was no expectation for me to necessarily, you know, be the next best thing. And I think between us, we kind of thought it would be a little bit of a stopgap until they actually found a proper person because I wasn't a proper person. I was just an accounts assistant. <laughs> and so that that's how it started. So um, I was promoted to finance director. And within probably about six weeks, there were some things that just really weren't right in the business. The growth strategy hadn't worked as intended. A lot of money was put into investment projects and they weren't producing the results that were intended. Um, And then we found some auditing oversights and that put us in a really financially strained position. It was quite dark, to be perfectly honest. And my role went from, you know, going on an adventure to actually trying to, you know, navigate the Titanic while sinking. <laughs> Ended up learning a considerable amount about myself, about my role, about people, and then went on for an adventure for the next five years that I just had never intended when I took the job. And 
essentially it was to rebuild the company whilst the company was still out there trading and and doing what it does company had fantastic products brilliant customers except everything in the back end of the business just was old archaic and basically department by department systematically worked through it and redesigned and you know brought new people in so an accidental an accidental leader and you've already told me that the thing i find so interesting about accidental leaders is well if they're not about leadership in in inverted commas what are they about and you said it straight away you just wanted to do a good job yeah i mean for me that that's how i've always branded myself i've always wanted to be somebody that people could rely on somebody knew that you know my word was my bond you know having great integrity and just doing the right thing and you know i'm quite an internally motivated person so praise isn't something that i i seek out but knowing in my soul that i've done the best job possible is the thing that is arguably the thing that strives for me to do better and better and better and to have a mammoth task of turning an entire company around with no real training you know i suppose is quite a phenomenal result really Mm-hmm. Okay, so wanting to do a good job, but that integrity, being able to see something, realizing that nobody else was going to turn it around and that you could influence it, and hence that that duty to do so. Absolutely. And within five or six weeks, you realized it was a serious situation. Uh, you talked about the t- Titanic just now, and I thought, oh my, oh my goodness. So what was going through your mind um, in those early days? You'd taken on being FD. It became MD a little bit later. What was going through your mind? Through my mind was basically, this can't fail. I am not going to be the person that feels like this has happened. And I suppose when you're picking up previous people's work that isn't yours, there is that there was that always that pressure that, you know, people might have thought, oh, my God, you've got this young, inexperienced FD that really shouldn't be in post. And now look at the finances of the company. And there was an enormous amount of pressure for me to be able to prove to myself and external stakeholders that actually, although this wasn't my responsibility, it wasn't my making, I was going to actually dig us out and I was going to turn it around because I actually really enjoyed working and I enjoyed where I was and I was enjoying what I was doing, even amongst all the chaos. And I didn't want that to end. And I knew that if I didn't want it to end, I had to fix it. So therefore, I threw everything at it to make it a success. And I had to think beyond my role as finance director and I had to think more strategically and more largely and more holistically and then I realized that there were parts of the company that just needed to be destroyed and rebuilt and actually that made me more excited rather than fearful because it was actually like I can build back better I can build back beautiful I can build people into the business that get it that that see how I want it to look one day I'm gonna die trying making this happen one way or the other so I might as well give it everything. And if it fails, then there's a learning opportunity there. And if it's successful, oh, wow, what, what a tale to tell, as I am today. <laughs> wow, what, a, what an answer. So failure is not an option is 
is is right in there. Um, that was the name of one of our early podcasts. Failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. But there was an imposter syndrome going on, but a, quite an interesting imposter syndrome because although you were worried what others might think, you absolutely believed in yourself. Yeah, and and that's something that I've had since I was really young. If I want to do something, I'm going to make it happen. And I might fail a few times, but I'm I'm not going to let things beat me. I have quite a in I'm quite competitive with myself. I want to be the best version of myself, and I always want to learn. I always want to develop. I always want to feel fulfilled. And for me, this was just that next thing to do. And I suppose whilst I was going through that journey, the one thing that really kept tiggling me was that I wasn't very career minded. And then I'm kind of stuck in the thick of something that is, you know, right up there for some people's dreams of things to do in their career. And I'm like, I just don't know how I've got myself into this pickle. But I'm, but even when it was stressful and it was really stressful at points and, you know, there were late nights, early beginnings, there were just times where I couldn't switch off and I couldn't unlink myself from the company because so much needed to be done. Um, because everything was critical and when you get to a point where things feel like they're they're sinking you just need to bail quicker than you can possibly bail and so for me it was that I can't put this much energy in and bail it it, it just can't it just can't work out like this and then realize that actually I was building a career and that wasn't really the intention it was just meant to be a nice adventure you know but discovered so much about myself that I would never have done if I hadn't been given the opportunity. Well, there's there's an element here of of not wasting a, a crisis. Uh, you said that you began to think, well, I can tear that down and build back better. But in the same moment, there there was what you just described to us. I need to bail. I need to bail faster than we can. You know, than than we can here. And it was all consuming by the sounds of it. So in addition to resolve, you drew on resolve. But in addition to resolve, what did you draw on to get through those overwhelming moments? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I drew on the fact that I wasn't going to let it beat me, for one. And two, I knew it was a great opportunity to bring new people into the business that I could have very upfront, honest conversations with and I wanted to employ people that could totally resonate with what I was trying to do. So they knew they weren't necessarily going to be coming into a company where everything was rainbows and unicorns. And actually, it was going to be hard and it was going to be a roller coaster and it was going to change a lot. And, you know, I had a lot of conversations with people about change and their feelings towards change. And People at the end of the interviews that used to look absolutely horrified, like, oh, my God, this sounds awful. It was like, right, you've definitely not got the job. And the people that were almost rubbing their hands going, I want to get stuck in, they're like, these are my people. And it was drawing on finding people that equally wanted to enter the chaos, but equally wanted to win. So it was a point where I could find really, really great people that just absolutely wanted to have their own chaotic adventure with me so drew on a lot of building a team that absolutely saw the world the same way I saw it and wanted to win this is so valuable uh, Emma so in that moment you 
you had the instincts, it sounds like, that what you needed wasn't a how, it was a who. And this was a great opportunity to to bring you know, a who, a new person, into the situation. And that's just such a powerful way to to find the right person and to introduce them to the business. You know, there's a challenge here and and let's meet it together. I wish more businesses would would onboard people in that way. You know, I don't want them all to go and find crises. But when you know we're hiring someone we think will be brilliant for the business, why don't we bring them in with a, a substantial challenge so that we and they can really get going powerfully together? Yeah, absolutely. And when you find those people, it is it is Nirvana. I remember the sales and marketing director I used to work with, Jennifer Taylor, fantastic, amazing individual. And I remember sitting with her in a pub in Godwin and just saying to her, look, I've got this vision of what the company culture could look like one day. And I know that's really, really difficult to believe that it might look this way in the future where we are now, but this is how I want it to look. And I remember her looking at me just going, I don't know if you can do it, but God, I want to die trying with you to make it happen. And that was the first moment where it was like ally building. Like I found an ally. I found somebody that was going to go through this with me, side by side, blow by blow, win by win, loss by loss. And we literally were inseparable. And she was my yin to my yang. And this was the other thing is that, I knew who I was and I knew my abilities, but I also knew I needed specialisms and I needed people that were better than me. And I was quite happy having people in the business that was better than me at things I couldn't do. Because I think it's really important to be a leader and be able to say, actually, I'm rubbish at quite a lot of stuff, but I'm really good at picking people that are better than me and making it all work. And at that point, I really lent into the fact that it was okay to be quite high level and strategic, quite creative with my ideas, visionary in how I wanted things to be done, have a relatively good sense of how we were going to get there, but then rely on people that really knew what they were doing and knew their stuff inside and out and were really trustworthy. Not not just trustworthy for me, but just trustworthy. You know, you just got that sense that they were going to go and do just as good a job as I would have done. And the same energy, the same enthusiasm, the same goal was all there. And so this kind of collective vision of what we wanted and where we were going came together. But they absolutely knew where their roles were, but also knew I was going to give them the independence and I wasn't going to undermine them. And I really wanted to create a culture where hierarchy was invisible. It was there for you know, strategic purposes, but it wasn't there in that really draconian fashion. I didn't want it to feel that, you know, I only do what my line manager's line manager, line manager says. I just really wanted to rid the company of that hierarchical system. Mm, I hear you. And there's so much in that answer we could dive into. But it's also the perfect segue to to something I want to ask you about, because you've created a lot of performance and progress in GNN. Uh, I think it would be fair for me to assume that there's some sort of strategic thinking behind that but you've also just described you know it's really clear what a powerful culture you created so Emma where do you stand on culture each strategy for for breakfast culture each strategy for breakfast it's, it, I don't think it's even a question I think it should be a statement 
for me, you know, it kind of feels like a chicken and egg situation for people, but for me, it's really not. It's really clear. Culture is the thing that drives growth in businesses. And I would be really happy to argue that with anyone that thought differently. And the reason why I think that is that I've worked in a number of companies where culture has been quite toxic and quite awful. And actually, you can see that stagnation through the numbers. For us, if you look at our numbers and what we were producing, you can absolutely see when that culture started to tighten and when it started to get better. Because suddenly, there was this contribution from everybody. Everybody understood that when they, if they were going to be part of the GNN ride, they either were adding to revenue and margin or they were finding ways to cost cut because that was the way the company was going to uh, get out of its rough patch. And so everybody understood where the company was in terms of its performance and also understood that they had a role in order to alter that performance for the better. And in quite a lot of companies, you hear that landed on the sales and marketing team. You know, we need to grow more sales. We need to market better. We need to, we need to increase our revenue. And actually for us, it was like, well, we can increase revenue. That's always great. But are we increasing our bottom line? Is that the thing that's growing? Because that's the thing that is going to determine our safety. And then it's going to determine whether we can grow and flourish as a business. And so the operational teams, you know, people that work in the warehouse department, the finance department, the procurement department, they were tasked with finding cost savings. So they were adding to the stability of the business. So everybody could feel that they had contributed. So it wasn't just on the sales and marketing team's shoulders. It was a collective effort. Everybody was bailing. Yeah, so that was a really fast answer. Culture eats strategy for breakfast every time. But you were talking about contribution. You were talking about performance as well as talking about about culture. And I totally agree. I don't think it's about culture or strategy. You know, and the statement is misunderstood that way. It's a culture goes hand in hand with performance. If we've got a good culture, we can have good performance in the business. And if we don't have a good culture, we can't. But it works the other way around as well. If we've got good performance in the business, we can support, we can enable, we can invest in the things that make our culture great as well. You know, so culture and performance connect for me. And if we've got those two, then we can we can do some strategic thinking and crack on. Lots of businesses need to also understand how their workforce's appetite is to change as well. I think that's the then overarching layer that goes with culture and productivity because we made sure that we had people that were very pro-change because a lot of it was going to happen because it had to happen because of where we were positioned financially. So people knew change was always going to be happening. But culturally, we made sure that that was really effectively communicated. Everyone knew why change was happening and everyone knew what we were looking for as a result of the change. And actually, we never really had too much issue when change happened. We had really good debates. Um, we had really good idea generations. We made sure that we were very collaborative in the way that we moved. We didn't want to be seen as very dictatorial because, again, that, that invisible hierarchy was really important to me. So it was all about getting people's thoughts because ultimately, and I see this happen all the time, people make decisions in boardrooms, but ultimately where the real observation and the real thinking needs to come from is the people that are doing the roles day in, day out and are seeing the business 
live in motion every day. And for me, that collaboration is really important. So is this where the big yak comes in? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Tell us about the big yak. Okay, so um, one Christmas, I can't remember which Christmas it was, but there was a Christmas that myself and my sales and marketing director stood at the Christmas party and it was like the party of the seas. (laughs) We had the operational teams on one side and we had the sales and marketing team on the other. And it wasn't until about 10, half 10, when people had had enough to drink and got drunk, they kind of thought they could talk to each other. And, you know, that, you know, that awkward ice breaking networking thing, nobody really wants to go to them, but you know, they know they have to. And it was a bit bizarre because we had what was the start of this really great culture. We had lots of people on board. We had loads of people invested and yet together, those two departments weren't really gelling. And we, we, we knew that was because our sales and marketing team were always remote. They were scattered around the UK looking after their regions and everybody else was at head office. And so I sat there thinking about how can I organically get people to speak to each other? And then I went away on holiday and I read Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Right, great book. It's a fantastic book. And I, I wasn't really, before that point, a reader or, of business books. I just felt really inspired reading it. And I sat there and I thought, right, okay, let's think about this. We've got people, they work together. How about if we create a topic a month, we put people in couplets, couplets that wouldn't normally work together, and give everyone half an hour to answer uh, a weekly question on a topic. And after each month, there would be a new topic and a new set of couplets. And that way, over the course of the year, because there was only 24 of us, luckily, everyone got to speak to everybody from the sales and marketing department and head office. So that there was this kind of cross-pollination. And, and some people really didn't like it. Some people then spent their big yak moments moaning to each other they didn't like it. But it was still happening. The point was not whether they enjoyed the topics. It was just the fact that they got to have a conversation that was non-work related, where they could just be themselves. It was being allowed. Management were allowing people to go and have a chat. And that was all it was about, was having a chat and finding out things that you didn't know before. And then when you had your chat, there was a WhatsApp group created for the whole company and everybody fed back the chats that they had, which then created this company dialogue and then banter was being had and gifts were being sent and then these friendships were then popping up in the most unusual places so then when we roll forward to the next christmas party i've got salespeople that are really excited to go and see the boys in the warehouse now a year ago that would have never have happened that would have never ever have happened because there would have been no reason for them throughout the year to talk to each other and it was through that system and through having something that then just self-perpetuated itself. There, there were these chats going on and then people found these pockets of friendships that wouldn't have been there. And then equally, when we had new people come in, it was a lovely way for new people to get to know people in this kind of organic way. And then we started to change it up. We started to build big groups with more controversial questions and actually get people's real thoughts on stuff. And then we added business questions in there, like, you know, how do you feel about the environment? And do you think we're doing enough about the environment? And then getting really good dialogue out of people. And the one thing we said was that nothing was off limits. You know, you express yourself how you want to express yourself. It's non-judgmental. It's meant 
for you guys to explore stuff. So you can put as much on the table or as little on the table as you want. That's up to you to self-monitor. And generally, it's worked better than I actually thought it was going to. I've always loved the story of of the big yak, uh, but I've understood more about it this morning because I heard so clearly that as well as generating that that conversation before it did that, it was generating connection, even even friendship. Thank you. That's uh, I think so many businesses out there should have a a big yak going on. Let's change tack for for a moment. Tell us about the business growth program at. at Cranfield. I remember you going, I remember you telling me it's amazing. So tell us about that. What were your big learnings? What stays with you today? Oh, Cranfield changed my life and it changed my life in a way that I really didn't expect it to at all. Back in 2018, we were getting out of the Titanic and getting onto a boat that actually was, you know, upright <laughs> with no holes. It was discussed that the business then needed to actually focus on growth and that we needed to do something and so um, I was asked to go on the business growth program and to be perfectly honest I wasn't convinced by the program after going through two years of hell you become pretty skeptical and pretty bruised and I went on it and I thought you know what's the worst that could happen you know the worst that could happen is I don't learn anything the best that can happen is I learn something and what it did was it reaffirmed all the work that I had done the previous two years so that everything I'd done had been instinctive. Having a career was not something I was aiming for. And so I, you know, like I said, I didn't read business books really up until a year and a half ago. So I was never drawn to that. And then suddenly to realise that, you know, this huge academic centre was teaching stuff that I'd instinctively done, you know, really helped with my imposter syndrome. Because right up until 2018, I was still... You know, I was 33, I think, 34, feeling like an imposter, waiting for someone to turn around and go, do you know what, you've, you've really tried, but, you know, you're not getting this. And then then to realise that actually, yeah, you, you've got this and you've done this instinctively and this is great and this is the next step. And the next step really focused around the, the culture building and learning who I was. And then I suddenly realised that actually – business isn't all cookie cutter and there isn't a way to do it and actually being in a room with other businesses that have the same issues was just again galvanizing in terms of like oh my god you know it's not just me that's got this wrong you know and and it's the the same reoccurring things that businesses struggle with people struggle with finances they struggle with sales and who their customers are and they struggle with people and culture and it doesn't matter what business you work into, one of those three things aren't going to be on point. And it's okay if it's not on point. That's the other thing. It's okay if it's not on point. But do you have a plan to get it further on point? You know? So I took away from that the fact that I wasn't alone. I built up a great network. I actually got to speak to other owner managers and have a platform where I could discuss quite candidly some of the hardships of running a business because running a business is hard, it's exhausting, it's time consuming. It's everything and you sometimes think you're very alone with that thought and those feelings and you think you're the only one that's kind of doing it badly and then when you realize there's other people that feel the same way oh that's just not that again that's just one of those nirvana feelings where it's just like i'm not alone this is great yeah it's so valuable isn't it and it's the reason that i bring the founders managing directors ceos in my coaching cohort i bring them together a day a month 
And in fact, I call that the RISE program now because of exactly what you've said. They found it so valuable because all of those things in a business, they're never all perfect at the same time. There's always one of them that's out of focus or feels wrong or is is out of date. And yeah, and part of it is is spotting what that is at the moment and focusing in on it. But it's so valuable to see those other businesses and see where they're strong, where they're weak and great environment. It, it, it really is. And you, you end up making lifelong friends. That's the other thing. You really end up building friendships within those circles. So, yeah, I went from being a, com- I'm a complete convert now to Cranfield. And last year, I was asked to be a counsellor on the business growth programme, which was a massive honour. You know, I'm still pinching myself that that, that's the case. Yeah, fantastic. And you will be amazing in that role. And that's part of what you're, what you're going to be doing next, Emma. So we'll hear about that in a moment. One more thing I want to hear about, though, is Gen Z, you employ a lot of younger people. It's almost as if that was part, you know, part of your your strategy. So tell us um, why and what do we need to know about this? I spend a lot of time defending Gen Z because I think in the media they get a, they get a bit of a hard time. I think if we look over the generations of the different types, we've had millennials, we've had baby boomers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, everything has always been hard. It's just been hard differently. And I think the problem is, is that people don't think about it in those moments in time. Technology has changed, which means careers have changed. And we've evolved. And every generation, there's an evolution of what our expectations are and what we want. You know, if we go back to, you know, the 1920s, workers' rights are really different to how they are today. That's just evolution. And so when you hear the media, you know, really laying into Gen Z, I get quite protective because I know I've employed so many under 30s and I I had to do that out of necessity you know I didn't have huge budgets I didn't have the ability to employ highly experienced people so I had to make a decision Um, and my decision was actually I wanted culturally the right fit people that could get on with my vision and go actually that's what I want and bring purpose and meaning to not only their work but themselves as individuals and looked for people that had transferable skills. So COVID was brilliant because we got people from the hospitality industry that were in like job stopping jobs where there wasn't really progression and nobody wanted to employ them. Where I was like, oh my God, you've got such great skills. You know, you're great with customer service. You're you're great under pressure. You know, you know what it's like to have somebody that is relentless in, in, in their moaning and you can handle this. And, you know, this wall drop of ducks back. These are really good, resilient skills that you're going to need working in our business. And at that point, what I was also coming to terms with was my own management style. For me, like I said, I really don't care for hierarchies. I understand why they need to be there, but I prefer to be more flexible in the way that I work and I approach. And for me, it's just about being a decent human being. That That's leadership, doing the right thing for other human beings. And I know that sounds quite broad and unspecific, but at the end of the day, none of us go to work fundamentally because we just love data processing or we love you know pulling pints we do it to find a lifestyle and so for me I recognize that I the same reason I work you know I wasn't born you know privileged enough that I could live on a yacht and spend my life traveling so I do that 
to create a lifestyle for myself. And so whilst you're at work, I want you to have the greatest time possible. I want you to work hard. I want you to learn about yourself. I want you to learn who you are. And I want you to be able to feel like you're heard and you're seen. And I think that's really important for for young people to be heard and to be seen. Um, And that opportunity isn't offered up quite as much as it should be. And then it rolls back into the fact that I don't think the education system does a good enough job with young people in helping them structure where they want to be. And because we're asking young people a massive question, like, what do you want to do for the next 40 to 50 years of your life and be happy? And you have to make that when you've got raging hormones, you know, social media exists, you know, all of these things are happening. And we want you to make a long term decision about yourself and you don't even know who you are. So I mix my leadership and coaching together and then actually just started having just just conversations really they weren't really about leadership they're like who are you what are you about do you understand who you are like what do you like doing you know and then we created I ended up creating lots of intimate relationships with the people I worked with and that created trust it created like a bond like I never really expected to bond with people but again that all then fed into the culture it fed into us going together or not no one was left behind you know it was just a sense of being seen and heard and lots of the young people that I employ are are absorbent sponges you know they get things and they sometimes get things quicker than I do and they have great ideas or they ask great questions and sometimes through the lens of naivety but sometimes a naive question every now and then to a leader is really great because it actually does take you back out and go oh actually we can break it down you know it, it, it's the whole you know when a six-year-old asks you why <laughs> question moment so for me I then just felt th- this kind of connection with Gen Z they just have so much to offer but I think people need to understand they need to be heard and listened to and understood because I think that's what people are looking for be it going to work and finding a sense of being understood I think gone are the days where you can compartmentalize work and, and home I think for Gen Zers that's a very big blend Amazing. Um, I'm just going to let people listen back to that answer. There were so many how-tos in there. And, you know, I learned as well, at least you've joined up a bit of my thinking there. When I was growing my big team, Gen Z wasn't quite on the scene. But I had an idea that really took hold uh, and really formed my thinking, which was those early conversations, so somewhere during the recruitment process, uh, probably at the end of the process, actually, when we were going to bring somebody on board, I would always meet them at that point. And the conversation that I wanted to have was along along the lines of, hey, Emma, tell me how taking this job, working with us, being part of our team, tell me how your dreams can come true. I'm also going to tell you how the company's dreams can come true. And here's the deal. If you come and work here, you make our dreams come true and we will make your dreams come true. And obviously, this is a business and we're a team and we do certain things. So let's have a really great conversation right here, right now, so we understand what that would look like. And then let's have that same conversation regularly at least every two years but more frequently than that as you stay with us and move through the business so that we're always making each other's dreams come true 
And I just never thought of that in the context of Gen Z, but it might be a, you know, it would be my way maybe of doing some of what you achieved so elegantly. Well, let's see. Let's see how it, it would be interesting if you have any Gen Z listeners, whether they agree, whether that's how they, that's how they see how the world of business and, and work should work. Love it. Let's hear from them. Let's, uh, we're not onto the quick fire yet, but let's pick up the pace a little bit. Emma, you've more than cut your teeth as a CEO. We've heard that. What playbook would you give to a brand new first time managing director or chief exec today? It's know your people. Know your people. Know them intimately. And not just your senior management. Know everyone. You know, if you're lucky enough to work in an SME, there is no reason why you can't know everybody's name, who they are, what they do. And talk to people. Talk to people all the time especially people who are doing some of the most boringest, lowest level entry jobs because they will see the most and they have thoughts. And again, back to that hierarchical situation, people feel that they are limited to be able to offer their thoughts or they're unworthy to offer their thoughts because they're only in the lowest level job in, in, in the organisation. And I think speak to them because some there's great stuff there. They see things and they watch and don't discount what they're saying because they'll see things long before it gets to the board table. Okay, remind yourself of this every day. We've heard from you that being a managing director, a chief exec can be all-consuming. And we talked about this once already in this conversation, but I want to come back to it. But maybe let's think about uh, later on in your journey at, at GNN. How do you manage to keep a balance when work is as demanding as it has been for you? It's tricky. Like you said, initially there was none. And actually at the time I told myself it was worth it. Um, And if I went back, I probably would go and do the same thing all over again. So don't take my advice on that. But the one thing I recognised was that I couldn't do it alone and I needed a really strong senior management team and I needed to build that. But I wanted to build it wisely I had rising stars in the business that I was earmarking, but some of them were, you know, six, 12 months away from being able to take that next step. So for me, there was some patience that needed to be done. And then it was about taking time when I could, knowing that my long-term strategy was to build the senior management team. And then when I put them in place, then suddenly I could then go and work on the business, not work in the business. And so it was almost a six-month period from starting the SMT off to getting them in place where actually I found myself being able to step back slow, more and more from the business to, to work strategically on it. And they did a fantastic job because I was mentoring and coaching them and spending huge amounts of time investing in people that when they got the job, it wasn't going to freak them out and it wasn't going to be like, oh, I can't do this, I'm new to management. It was slowly getting them ready. So a lot of my time went into people um, because, you know, if you've got a department of four, you're managing three of them really well. That's, that department's working 75% effectively. And if they're working 75% effectively, you can then get on with your job. And, and that's the way I just saw everything in terms of get a senior management team in place get the right people and not just the right people in their individual departments but do they work well together as a collective senior management team are they going to do conflict really well 
together? Are they going to raise? Are they going to understand? Are they going to be there? Are they going to, you know, when one department goes on holiday, the rest of the five are going to step in and support the department? Um, and those were all the things I was spending so much time working on. And that was the point at which I could then start doing work-life balance stuff. And that was fantastic. Holidays are wonderful. Taking your answer there in combination with what you said, what you were saying earlier about the sort of conversations you had with your with your Gen Zs, with all of your people, uh, and you just used the word phenomenal. For me, every business should be good at seeing their phenomenal people, regardless of 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 gender. But if we're good at seeing phenomenal people, yeah, you know, what do we mean by that? Can we see somebody's potential? Can we see their impact? Can we see their result? Let's get good at seeing those things because then, you know, we will see that, including when one of our phenomenal people uh, is out of the business on mat leave for six, nine, 12 months, two or three times over, perhaps. We've got to be able to see that they're phenomenal and then they can have the journey we need them to. All right, let's lighten up quick fire questions. Elon Musk or Ariana Huffington? Oh, gosh, that is a loaded question. I think Ariana Huffington. I think off the last question, you could not not say Ariana Huffington. <laughs> I hadn't thought about the order of the questions. What one word is most used to characterise you as a leader? Uh, unexpected. Unexpected. I like that. Cook or dine out? Cook every time for me. What, you've talked a bit about age uh, in our conversation here, what's been your favourite age so far? Right now, yeah, right now. I am. Um, I yeah, everything feels very aligned right now for me. Brilliant, glad to hear that. Tell me, what would be a a stop, do different, start or continue item for you? Uh, a stop is writing emails in my head at three a.m. <laughs> really want to stop doing that, and so I suppose a start is to write more effective to do lists. So I can stop writing emails in my head. Uh, do you know what? It's so nice to hear about a foible like that <laughs> after the conversation we've we've just had. Um, audible, Kindle, paperback, hardback or TED Talk? Depends. Business books on Audible because I like using paperbacks to read for pleasure. There you go. The title of the TED Talk that you have not yet given. Something that's particularly rooted into who I am today is uh, it's probably it's a rough title I don't think you've used it but using narcissistic abuse to my advantage wow I need to see that TED talk <laughs> maybe we'll make it into a podcast first absolutely if that's what you want to do I'm, I'm game <laughs> the thing that instantly instantly relaxes you oh being in water uh-huh. I get that I get that one item from your professional bucket list starting my own company uh-huh well, I'm going to ask you about that um, in just a minute. What does gritty mean to you? For me, it's a, it, it's a, gritty is a great word because it's, it, it has a real texture to it. Um, but for me, it's knowing that you're an underdog, being continually underestimated, yet still turning up, still turning up, still fighting, trying to learn and just to keep trying. And who is your go-to gritty leader and why? Rizza from Wu-Tang Clan. Brilliant. For me... He had a vision and he was really unwavering with his vision. He, for people that aren't aware of who the Wu-Tang Clan are, he took nine rappers, people that, you know, didn't originally even like each other, made them, they were all great in their own way and would create these competitive arenas to get their verses on tracks. 
And so the music was constantly evolving, constantly developing, constantly being richer in content. And then on the business side of it, him and his brother had built a company for the Wu-Tang Clan and all those rappers were employed mm-hmm. with contracts. And so when they went to the record labels, the record labels were like, this is what you're going to get and you're going to be really happy with that. And RZA was really like, no, that's not my vision. That's not how that's going to work. And so they turned down big record labels at the time because RZA wasn't getting what he wanted because he knew how his vision was going to look and he knew how he was going to make himself and those rappers incredibly rich businessmen and make them businessmen. Essentially, he didn't stop for anything less and he signed with a loud record company and they gave him everything he wanted and in return they got everything they wanted. Amazing. Let's wrap up and let's wrap up actually um, by hearing what's brought the this chapter at GNN to a close. We started with Mission Accomplished. Tell us about that and then tell us what's next. Okay, so how the so basically um, you're slightly responsible, I think. Then, um, yeah, you, you yourself and Ian. Is that good or bad? No, no, it's really good. Um, I remember driving uh, up to Wales and listening to you and Ian with the podcast about good time leader, wartime leader, and it really, really resonated with me because I firmly sat in wartime leader camp, and my time at GNN came to a close because essentially the war was over. I had accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for the company. You know, it's in a really strong financial place. Its products are on point. The people are just great. You know, people have careers. They've got development. They've learned skills. There's a senior management in place that knows what they're doing. Jen, sales and marketing director, is just absolutely has vision and knows where she's taking it. And I just felt that, if I had stayed, I would then start meddling and then I would become the leader I don't want to become. And I think in business, sometimes it's fluid. You don't have to be in all the chapters. And I, I've done my chapters and it's now for a company that is poised to do amazing things to do the next set of chapters and do it in their way and with their vision. And I think that's I think that's a great place to leave a business rather than being asked to leave a business or going to start a new job somewhere is just being able to recognise that your time has organically come to an end and that you have served your purpose, you have done your job well and it's for the next generation to take on, grow and make better than even I could have done. The the war is over. It's such a nice way to to think about it and so much achieved. Um, Fantastic self-awareness in that answer as well. So what's next for you? What is, is it another war elsewhere? What's next? Tell us. So what's next is, uh, like I said, on my bucket list is I've created Outside the Bubble. Um, and Outside the Bubble is a business coaching and consultancy company. What I have recognised working with Gen Zers and speaking to businesses and getting to know businesses more intimately is that management sometimes is just seen as this add-on to when people get promoted. And that there isn't enough time and investment given to people on how to be a great manager. And lots of that is underpinned by the fact that people don't know who they are themselves as individuals. And I think there is some crossover there with people getting to know who they are as individuals and how they can be their authentic self in a management situation. 
uh, whilst doing the hard jobs of management. Management isn't all, you know, you're doing great, you're doing fantastic jobs. There's a there's sometimes a really dark, serious side of having to manage people and doing some stuff that will might make you uncomfortable. So it's really me working with businesses that recognise they have rising stars, they've got great potential, or they've got first-time managers, and they just need those etiquette lessons in how to be great management and what to do at you know the board table and how to present yourself and how you can then coach and get to know your management team so it really is about you know me maybe working a level underneath uh, the top tier team and coaching individuals that you know are new and are looking to flourish and can't do that so it's all about companies investing and people wanting to go on that self-development and growth journey themselves fantastic as you know that that space underneath uh that sort of middle and upper management layer is so underserved you're gonna you're gonna have so much so much impact uh i'm really delighted to be gaining you as a as a colleague on the outside working on the inside of 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 businesses um welcome aboard thank you very much (laughs) emma that's been a fantastic conversation thank you thank you so much we're going to have to have you back because there's more to talk about (laughs) 